good morning, Southbridge. I joked on my Facebook this week that uh, I think I'd been converted, officially converted to being a Southerner because of pimento cheese. I love pimento cheese. Um, I think this was baptism being converted to the South here. Bluegrass Sunday. We're glad you're able to join us and be here with us. One person told me that I wasn't really Southern until I ate fried bologna, which I've never tried, but um, we'll see. We'll see. One step at a time. It's all working itself out, right? It's happening. Uh, but we're glad you're here. If you're a guest with us today, if you wouldn't mind looking in your worship program, there's a little card on there that we attach. If you wouldn't mind taking a moment right now and just filling that out and letting us know as much information as you feel comfortable telling us about yourself. But really, well, one of the things we really want to know is how did you hear about us at the church? How did you end up getting here? Because we want to be able to invite as many people as we can. We believe we have a life-changing message in Jesus Christ, just like we were just singing about. And so we want as many people as possible to experience that. So if you just take your worship program, begin filling out that card, and after the service, take it out to the first-time guest kiosk. We've got a gift that we want to give you. And then also, um, we're going to make a donation to a ministry, and you can read about that in your worship program for every card that gets turned in today. So if you'd read that and uh, just turn that in, that would be a wonderful blessing. And while you're doing that, just thinking about us as a church, we've had a lot of fun lately. Uh, Bluegrass Sunday, obviously. Last week we did communion, had a chili cook-off. It was Southbridge Serves. We did fall kickoff recently. Been spending some time hanging out together in fellowship and stuff. And if you remember all the way back to State of the Church Sunday, September 7th, um, I told you at that time that uh, about four to six weeks from then, we'd, Lord willing, be announcing a groundbreaking date on the piece of property that we own. For those of you who don't know, we own a piece of property over on Glenwood Avenue, just around the corner, about three miles from the front door of this movie theater. And I've been working on breaking ground on that for a little while now, raising money for that. And you can see some of that information in your worship program. Um, but today, I don't have a groundbreaking date for you. Like, let that announcement sink in for a second. Um, but the reason why is because we've gotten good news back from um, a couple financial lending institutions, and we're weighing through some of the differences in the different packages they're offering us, having some experts look at that, and our elders and our leadership team are looking at that. And so if you would be praying for us through that, pray that we'll be the best stewards we can possibly be in that process, and then pray that God directs clearly um, through that process, and we'll have various folks speaking into that. And so if you would be praying about that, Lord willing, in about three weeks, well, I'll be able to announce to you a groundbreaking date. So you like how that happens? Wouldn't it be cool if that happened in college? Like, just, just kind of push out the deadline. We'll just keep pushing out the deadline. Um, but the reason why is uh, we didn't want to rush to a decision um, just so that we could announce a, a groundbreaking date. Uh, we want to be good stewards of everything that God's entrusted to us. And he's given us some options. Options are good. So it's been really good news um, where we're at. So thank you. It's because of your generosity that that's even a possibility. And so that, pray for that. And today what we're going to do is we're continuing a series we started uh, two weeks ago called Trending Now. Uh, the way this series came about is we asked our church, uh, just handed out three by five cards for a couple weeks in a row, and said, if you could ask God one question, what would you ask? And then also if your neighbor could ask God one question, what would they ask? In the last two weeks, we covered uh, a question that was overwhelmingly the majority, especially for your neighbor. It was, uh, what, what, what do you, why does God allow suffering? Why does bad stuff happen? So if you're interested in that question, listen to the last two weeks' messages. Today we're going to talk about, uh, a lot of people, ask, there are several people ask questions about sin, specifically about their own sin. So we're going to talk about the battle with sin, a battle that happens within us today. And in, in this series, we're going to talk about, you ask questions about homosexuality, marriage, all kinds of stuff. And so we're going to be covering this uh, through the month of November as well. But today we're going to be in Romans. If you, for those of you who like to get a head start and get there, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll jump into the message together. We're in Romans chapter 7 and 8 today. So let me pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to open your word, to gather together, to sing praises to your name. Thank you for your, your scriptures that you give us, your promises, uh, your corrections, uh, but you ultimately you point us to your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for those of us who have Christ, that we have the Holy Spirit, a comforter, a guide, a counselor, a keeper, 
um, one that will convict. And I pray that your spirit would do all the work that your spirit does today in our hearts supernaturally beyond anything we could imagine, beyond anything that we could manipulate, beyond anything that we could try and manufacture happening, that your spirit would do something supernatural as we gather together and we open up your word, speak into our lives and our exact circumstances into our jobs and our marriages and our relationships and our classes and all the things that are happening and the health situations and the difficult situations and the victorious ones. Will you speak today, please? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, quick survey as we get started. How many dog people do we have here today? Any dog fan? Real silent on that, huh? No, nobody real excited about their dog? Any dog fans here today? All right, got some dog fans. I know there's cat people that attend our church. Ooh, whoa, whoa, we got our Sinuel Hall going. All right, we got that. It's exciting. Um, we got cat people too, I'm sure, at our church. Turtle people, bunny people, all are welcome. Just come just as you are. We're glad that you're here. Somebody might even own a horse. We're glad that you're here today. I'll tell you, my family, we're dog people. We love dogs. They're called man's best friend for a reason. They're incredibly loyal. Having a dog is a great thing. Everybody who had a dog can probably testify. You can have a terrible day, and you come home, and that dog is happy to see you. Everybody else can be mad at you, but the dog is happy to see you. They don't care. And if you want to complain to the dog, they'll just sit there and listen. They never interrupt. Isn't that amazing? And if you don't want to talk, the dog will just sit there. It's just great. If you sit down by the dog, it'll lick your face. I love dogs. Let me, so let me be real clear about that. But dogs are gross. Okay, I love my dog. Dog can do gross stuff. So we've got a miniature dachshund at our house. It's a miniature wiener dog. They're kind of long dogs. And uh, we've got four kids as well. They drop stuff on the floor. The dog's like a vacuum cleaner. Just kind of comes around, picks it all up. It's pretty cool the way the whole system works. <laughs> Food cycle that happens at our house. And then also our kids give them stuff that, that they don't think we know. He gives them. But anyway, he digests most stuff great. Every once in a while, dog throws up. Okay? It's about to get real gross. So it's gross when anybody throws up. What our dog does, though, is it sends a warning signal. It has a noise that it makes. Kind of goes like this. I think what's happening is that the stuff's working its way through its hot dog body because it's kind of a long dog. And so, but our whole family knows because this has happened before. So the whole family knows. It doesn't matter what you're doing. If you hear, you drop it and you grab the dog and you take him out into the backyard. Okay, that's, that's what happens. It's kind of the Lear code of conduct. It just got out in the backyard and, and the dog goes out there and the dog throws up. Now it's nasty when anybody throws up. It's nasty when a baby throws up. It's nasty when an adult throws up. You and I, we've all thrown up. We don't like to talk about this. We have. But when a dog throws up, it's extra nasty. You know why? They go back for round two. <laughs> they eat it. Have you ever watched? If you put them out in the backyard and then just watch and see what happens, they throw them and then they go back. It's like, yeah, I think I will. You know, and he goes in for, for more. I have no idea what the dog is thinking at that moment. Was the dog thinking, well, that was really good the first time. I'm going to, or maybe it didn't work out the first time. Let's just try it again is what they're doing. They might be a guest and you're thinking, why is this guy talking about this? Proverbs chapter 26 says this. God talks about this. As a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. What the Bible is talking about is not how disgusting dogs are. It's talking about a proverbial, a truth that we know is reality, that dogs eat their vomit. They go back. It doesn't even make sense. Why would anyone do that? But then we look at our own lives and see that we go back and we do the same bad decision again. We make the same mistake. We repeat the same sin. Why? Just think about it. Whatever your sin of choice is, whatever your weakness is, maybe your besetting sin or the vice that you, you deal with, it, we say we're never going to get angry again. We get angry. We say we're not going to get angry again. Until the next time, right? Like we could be praying. God, I'm sorry for getting angry. I don't want somebody knocks on the door. Can't you see I'm praying? You know. I mean, God, I don't ever want to do it again. And or or uh, you overeat and say, I'm never gonna, I'm not gonna be gluttonous again. But then that that was just, just hate that's so good, and you just keep eating for taste, and you get, until you do it again. 
Or you take a sin that's a popular, we talked about the studies and the stats are overwhelming, pornography. What, what you, you, do, you look at the pornography, then you feel guilty, and then you say you're never going to do it again until the next time. And then we can talk about sensational sins and pride and selfish ambition and all that stuff, but what about the ones that we don't ever want to talk about? What about complaining? <laughs> Read Facebook. What about gossip? We talk about gossip? We don't, we're allowed to talk about gossip in church? I mean, I know you're not supposed to gossip in church, but then how many times does somebody say, did you hear about so-and-so? No, 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 tell, I want to know. Why? Why do we do that? We already know it's wrong. We know it causes division. We know there's disunity. We know it ruins relationships. Why do we do that? We keep going back. We're like dogs turning to the vomit. So does a fool do their folly? This is a question that people ask when we uh, were talking about this series and saying, if you could ask God any question, what would you ask? And people asked, and I'll read you exactly what people wrote from our church in their words. How can I overcome sin that I've struggled with for a long time? So I'll be setting sin, the same sin in my life. Why do I keep doing the same one? Like, at least I graduate and move on to like a different sin, right? Like, why do I keep doing the same sin? Somebody asked in more of a theoretical way. They said this, why sin? God knew the choice we'd make in the garden. I assume what they're implying is, why didn't God just take sin off the table? Why is that even an option? Somebody else, I think, um, captured the idea of what many of us experience well when they said this. Why do I sin, feel guilty, and sin again? It's like a cycle of sin. Why do I sin, then I don't want to do it anymore, I feel guilty about it, and maybe even make commitments you're not going to do anymore, then you do it again. That's the story. That's the story of many of our Christian lives. John Owen, famous dead guy, wrote a bunch of great stuff on sin, about killing sin. He said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. It is a battle. That is part of the Christian life. And if you don't realize you're fighting the battle, you're probably losing. We're in a battle and it's a battle within. You're not alone. The Apostle Paul talks about it in his own personal life in Romans chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 7. And we're going to get to, we're really going to spend our time in Romans chapter 8, but you've got to see Romans 7 to understand Romans chapter 8. And what we're talking about is the battle within, a battle that Paul himself even experienced. Now, when we read this, notice that Paul's going to be speaking in the first person. He's going to use first person singular pronouns, I, me, I, this is my problem. He's not an immature Christian. He's not a carnal Christian. He is a Christian. And he's the guy who writes the majority of the New Testament. So you should take comfort just in the very fact of who's writing this. Now, what's the context here for Romans chapter 7? Context for Romans chapter 7 is all the first six chapters of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1 talks about how basically all of us are without excuse before God. Even if you call yourself an atheist, everybody knows God exists. Through his creation, he's revealed himself. Now we deny it, and it says in Romans chapter 1, we suppress the truth because of our sinfulness, and we exchange the truth of God for a lie, and we worship created things rather than the creator of all things. So we worship creation. That's idolatry. It doesn't matter if it's a little statue, or if it's your family, or it's your bank account, or it's some goal that you have in your life. If it's created thing, you're worshiping an idol. And so we worship created things rather than the creator of all things, and everybody does it. Romans chapter 3. Not just you do it, not just some people in the garden did it, not just I do it. For all have sinned. Everyone, everywhere, in any place has sinned. And we fall short of God's perfect standard. And sin entered the world through that guy in the garden, Adam, Romans chapter 5. But just as sin entered the world through that one man, Adam, so did great by grace, forgiveness, innocence, righteousness entered the world through Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 6 says, for the wages of sin, what you earn, what you deserve for your sin, the wages of sin is death, spiritual death, which is the underlying cause for physical death and separation from God. 
But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 6, he's given you a gift. And if you have Christ, you have this gift. So you've been declared righteous. And so Romans chapter 1 through 6 is about a, a courtroom word called justification. You've been declared righteous. Even though you were guilty, you've been declared innocent because all of the punishment for your sin was cast upon Jesus Christ. And what's happening in Romans chapter 7 here is that Paul's he's talked about this, he said this, and so people are accusing him of saying that the law is a bad thing because it shows us guilty. He's saying, no, the law is not the problem. The problem is my sinfulness. Look at what he says. Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. Sold as a slave to sin. Verse 15 talks about this battle within. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. So I want to do something that I'm not able to do, but what I hate, I do. So I do the things I don't like doing. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but there's this indwelling presence, this sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. Now the spirit lives in me. We're talking about that in Romans chapter 8, but he's talking about in his sinful nature, there's nothing good there. For I have the desire to do what is good, which shows he's a believer actually want to do what the law says, but I can't carry it out. I'm a conflicted person. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, I do. I do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So, verse 21, I find this law at work, this principle at work in my life. When I want to do good, evil's right there with me. Sin is crouching at your door, desires to have you. For my inner being, I delight in God's law. So I, want, I read the word, and I want to do what the word says, but I see another law at work in my life. I go out and I live my life, and the members of my body, my arms, my legs, my feet, my eyes, are waging war against the law of my mind and taking me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. And he cries out in desperation, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me? From this body of death, then he gives the answer. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law. That's good. But in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. That's not good. You can't stand Romans chapter 7. You've got to read Romans chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free. So we've been set free if we have Christ from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, and it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did. So we couldn't do it, the law couldn't do it, but God did it by sending his son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering and a condemnation bearer. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law, which is good and spiritual, might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. This is good news, bad news here. Bad news. A lot of us live in Romans chapter 7. Paul lived in Romans chapter 7. I don't even know why I do the things I do, and I don't do the things that I want to do, and I do the things I don't want to do, and I hate it. I'm like a dog returning to my vomit. Good news, though, but I've been set free. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And when he talks about being set free from, you continue to read through Romans chapter 8, as we're set free from that condemnation and that punishment, we're also set free to live where sin is dying. And that's our first point today. We're set free to live where sin is dying. Not where sin is dead, not where it's eradicated, because we still live here on this earth where sin is still ruling. And we still live in these bodies where sin still has power. There's an indwelling sin within us. Paul, as a believer, Romans chapter 7, is saying, I, as a mature believer, am still struggling with this. Sin's not eradicated. There's still a battle that's taking place. There is a war with sin. It's a war within, a battle within us. But we've been set free to live in a place 
where we sin less. Not that we're sinless, but we sin less and we sin less where sin is dying. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. See, a lot of times we don't talk like that. A lot of times you hear Christian testimonies and and they go kind of like this. Um, Things were really bad at some point in time in the past. I had some experience, read a verse, prayed a prayer, had an experience, and now everything's perfect. Fairy tale living, by the way. Maybe for some, maybe for some, they're not saying God can't do it. You know, I did drugs my whole life, trusted Christ, never even wanted to look at it again. That can happen. It's not likely that that's the way that it works because we still have a sin nature. We still have a desire to do the wrong thing. And so it's still a battle. It's still a struggle. Even Paul experienced, he doesn't name his sin here, but he specifically goes back and he says, I don't even know why I do the stuff that I do. Look what he says in verse 15. After talking about the law being spiritual, in verse 15 he says, I don't understand what I do. It doesn't even make sense when I start thinking about it. But what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. I do, 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 do. It's not good. He's got himself all twisted up here. I can't believe I read the passage. He says, I don't even understand why I'm doing the things I'm doing. Which reminds me of speaking to my kids. Why did you do that? I don't know. That's a legit answer, parents, by the way. They really don't know. Here's the answer. It's an opportunity for you to share the gospel with the answer. is because you've got a sin nature inside of you. You naturally want to do sinful things. It's like, but you think about in practical circumstances, what happens? You just scratch your head. I had a, I'd won my, my oldest daughter the other day was getting a balloon for one of her younger sisters. And she got a ladder out and the sister kicked the ladder. She's getting the balloon for her. The sister kicks the ladder out from underneath her. Why did you do that? I don't know. It's, it's, what, it's what happens. I was taking our baby up to go to bed. Shannon wasn't feeling well. I was putting all four kids to bed one night. I get upstairs. I've got the, the youngest daughter in my arms. I'm coming up, and I told the three oldest, like, you just kind of got to take care of yourself for a minute. Brush your teeth. Put your pajamas on. You know the night routine. Go do the thing. One of them comes running out and says, the toilet flooded. <sighs> We've done this before. I said, go clean it up. And I go take the baby to bed. Did the whole deal. Prayed with her, sang a song with her, told her a story, tucked her in, which was sweet for the baby and I. We had a great moment together. Provided way too much opportunity for bad things to happen in the other room. <laughs> so I come out. There's so much water on the floor. It looked like they were reenacting the flood. Like, it is bad news. And there, I look in the bathroom. They went downstairs. They got the plunger. It's as big as the daughter who has it in the toilet. She's, like, standing on the front of the toilet with the plunger. Not doing it right at all, but whatever. And then then I walk in, and I can't believe how much water there is. It looks like a geyser have gone off in here. Because when a toilet floods, it just kind of overflows, right? It just goes on and throw a towel around the base, and you're all set. They've got beach towels all over the floor. It's still not enough. The water's actually gone into the room next to the bathroom where there's carpet, so that's terrible. And I'm irritated at this point, so my sin nature is at work. And so I come in there and say, what happened? Well, I just kept flushing the toilet. Because <laughs> they thought, well, I flush it, things go down. Well, things aren't going down. So it was like the eighth time or the ninth time, did you think to yourself, this isn't working? <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, why did you do, what's wrong with my kids that they would just keep doing the same thing? And I think, well, they're my kids, that's why. Because I do that stuff too. I've joked with you before about McDonald's, right? Like, this is a little personal illustration about how bad McDonald's is. I remember opening a message one time talking about all the different foods and the terrible ingredients they have in them. I talked about McDonald's has human hair, that is one of the ingredients they found in there. And you've seen the, the movie Super Size Me, probably, at least you've heard about it. We all know McDonald's is terrible. We all know McDonald's is killing us. They sell six billion burgers a day. So some of us are eating it, okay? Just not a math. It just got it's got to happen, and so I I I ate there twice this week. Okay, so that's really bad. 
once uh, breakfast, and, and once I was really hungry, and uh, I was out about, it was awkward to get into a parking lot another place. I can just rationalize this, but so I went in. I bought a burger. I go home. I tell my wife. I said, yeah, I had a burger at McDonald's today. She looked at me like I had leprosy. It's like I was dirty or something at that moment. I, I've eaten it. Why do I eat it? I know it kills me. I know it's bad for me. I know they put human hair in the food. Why am I buying it? I don't know. I don't know. I just did. I don't know. If we're like that. We know, we know our sin is bad. We know our sin kills us. Why do we keep doing it? Paul says, I don't understand why I do what I do. I don't know. We, know, we can tell all the stats about how bad porn is. That's a popular one, so let's talk about that one. All the stats, you know, all the men do it, women do it, all, all the people looking at computer screens causes intimacy disorders, will ruin your marriage, it'll never satisfy you, it's a dark hole, you start going down, eventually you're going to need more and more and more, just like anything you get addicted to. But then those who do it, do it. Wish they didn't do it, do it again. Why? I don't know. Anger, same thing with anger, uh, jealousy, gossip. Why, why, why gossip? And you, say, you know it's bad, and then somebody says, and they've got TV shows for it, and magazines for it, and blogs for it, and, but, and, you, and we want it. Why? I don't know. And, and why? why? They just think about all the, the sins, whatever your sin is. Why? It's there, and you do it, and then it's like the guy said that wrote in, or what female said, I don't know who it was. Why do I sin, feel guilty, and sin again? Because when you ask, if you just ask the person, why do you keep doing this? I don't know. Why are we so merciless as, as Christians? Like, think about if there's anybody that should be a mercy giver, shouldn't it be us? Amen. Now, watch the next time any Christian celebrity, okay, because we have them. There's people that are famous, they're Christians. Anytime that they, something bad happens in their life, how many people attack them? Go to Facebook. Watch. What about, we don't like to talk about complaining. Go to Facebook. <laughs> That's a sin. Unforgiveness, bitterness. Why do we keep doing this stuff? I don't know. Paul tells us. So it doesn't make sense to me when I think about it. I do not understand it. In my mind, it doesn't make sense, he's saying. Why well, I would want to do one thing, but then I do something else. Then jump down to verse 19. He says, for what I do is not the good that I want to do. There's a good sign that he has the spirit. That he actually wants to do what God says. But that's not what happens the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Like a dog going back to its vomit, I keep doing this. Verse 20, now if, if, what I, now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me who that does it. Not rejecting his responsibility. He realizes he's the one that's actually doing it, but he's going to the cause. What is the cause? It's the sin in me. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil's right there with me. It wants to have you crouching at your door. For my inner being, I delight in God's law. There's a sign you're a believer. But I see another law at work within the members of my body, waging war, and so now we have military terminology, against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. There's a battle, there's a war within. And it's a battle between the spirit and the flesh. The NIV translates flesh here, sin nature. So different translations may say different things, but you have this battle that's taking place. The spirit of God living in you, and you get exposed to the truth of God, and you want the truth of God, and you want to do the truth of God, but then you go to live your life, and then members, it's like your hands do other stuff, and your feet do other stuff, and your mind is under attack, and there's a war waging within you. It's the military term that's used there. The sin's trying to take over. I don't know if you watch the news much. I turned the news on this past week and see all this terrible stuff that's happening with ISIS in the Middle East and what they'll do. It doesn't matter if you're watching Fox, CNN, whatever channel you choose to watch. You turn it on, they'll pop up a map 
and they'll show these are the territories where ISIS has taken over. And they'll start showing all the different cities and towns where they've taken over and say, these, we believe these are going to be the next spots. See, there's a war that's waging within us. And what Sid wants to do, it's right there with you. It desires to have you, wants to take over all the different territories in your life. Wants to take over in your marriage. Wants to take over your bank account. Wants to take over your actions. Wants to take over who you hang out with. Wants to take over what you input into your mind. Wants to take over the way that you think and eventually your mind and everything about you desires to destroy you. And Paul realizes that on our own, we are hopeless and we are helpless. What a wretched man I am, speaking of himself. And then he says in verse 24, who, not what, not what program, not what devices, not what three keys or five steps or discipline I can add, who person will rescue me from this body of death? Who will, and that word rescue, some of your translations say set free. Who's going to set me free? Who's going, and the word there is for a soldier that's grabbing his comrade out of battle, who's dying in battle. Who's going to rescue me? Who's going to set me free from this body of death? Interesting phrase there, body of death. What do you mean this body of death, Paul? Now there was a tradition tells us in Tarsus, there was a tribe. In Tarsus, we know it's a, a town, town uh, where Paul's from. Tarsus, there's a tribe in Tarsus, tradition tells us, that when they had a murderer that was found guilty of murder, the way that they would punish that murderer is they would take the corpse of the body of the person they murdered and strap it to the murderer. So the body would then decompose and all the infection would then spread from that body and that would be their execution into the murderer. Perhaps that is the image that Paul has in mind here when he says, who will rescue me from this body of death? The things I'm doing are killing me and I can't fix it. Because I keep doing what I don't want to do, and I don't even understand why I do it, but I keep doing it, and I want to do these things, but I can't do these things, and so what do I do? I need someone to rescue me. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord means he rules and he reigns. So then I myself, in my mind, I'm a slave to God's law. That's good. But in my sinful nature, my flesh, I'm a slave to the law of sin. That's not good. Therefore, I've got to go to chapter 8. Chapter 7. We can identify with, but chapter 8, that's where victory is at. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Which means this, if you're not in Christ Jesus, there is condemnation. You are hellbound. You will pay for your sins. But therefore, why, is, why does it say therefore? What is it pointing to? When you read that word in the Bible, therefore is pointing backwards to something. What is the therefore, therefore? Well, it's pointing back to, well, not just Romans chapter 7, because Romans chapter 7, that's not good. Therefore, because we're battling, therefore? No, it's pointing back to all of Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 7. It's the whole book. We're all sinners. We all choose creation over the creator. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 5, just as sin in the world through one man, Adam. Now, we all got problems. So through one man, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, grace came. And you're, you're given the option to be in Christ by receiving the gift that he's offering us of eternal life. And if you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. Therefore, because of that, because of what Christ did, therefore, there is, and there's an easy word to read over, now no condemnation. It's easy to just quote it. Therefore, there is no condemnation. 
But it says, therefore, there is now no condemnation. Do you want to underline that or circle that in your Bible if you write in your Bible? Why now? Because now Christ has come. Before we were living according to the law. We're trying to keep the Ten Commandments and be a good boy, be a good girl, and it didn't work. It wasn't because the law was bad. It wasn't because the law didn't point us to God. It wasn't because the law didn't point us to God's desires. But what it ultimately reveals in us is our sinfulness because we can't do it. And so all the sheep and all the goats that were sacrificed, they didn't get it done. But now, now, therefore, there is now no condemnation. What's condemnation? It's punishment for your sin. The guilty verdict comes down from the judge and then you're sentenced but the sentence has already been poured out on Christ. He's the condemnation bearer. That's what verses 2 and 3 tell us. Therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because, here's the reason, verse 2, through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free. So the same guy that was struggling back in chapter 7 saying, now I'm free from the law of sin and death, that battle that was within me. For what? The law was powerless to do and it was weakened by my sinful nature. It wasn't that the law was bad, it was me. God did it, though, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man. He didn't have sinful flesh, but he was really wearing flesh. He was all things human minus the sinful nature. And so he never sinned in likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. So when he died on the cross, he was the sacrifice. Because freedom only comes from sacrifice. Those of you who served in the military, you know what I'm talking about. Those of you who live in it, hopefully we appreciate it. The sacrifice here was God's own son. And so he, Jesus Christ, condemned sin in sinful man. So it has been sentenced. So it is under punishment. Sin. For those who are in Christ, freedom is there. Freedom for what? To be living where sin is dying. Not dead. Not that you don't ever sin again. It's not eradicated. We still live in this sinful world. We still live in these sinful bodies. But there's victory for those who are in Christ because you've been set free. Why? Because the condemnation was poured out on Jesus Christ. So everything that was poured out on Jesus Christ was actually yours to bear. So the crown of thorns, that was for us. The torn up back and flogged to the point where he should have been dead, that was for us. The being stripped naked and humiliated, how about that for our pride? Because God opposes the proud, he gives grace to the humble. Being stripped naked, publicly hung on a cross, and all the physical tortures that went with that, but all the physical tortures were nothing in comparison to taking the weight of your sin and my sin on his shoulders. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was crushed for our transgressions. And that was the punishment of hell poured out on him on the cross because that was God's condemnation for our sin. And then he's our condemnation bearer for those of us who have accepted the gift of his life that we're seen, even though we're not innocent, we're seen as innocent. Even though we're not righteous, we're seen as righteous. And so there's freedom. Therefore, there's now, that's one of the most glorious verses in the Bible. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, which means you have freedom. When the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. That's from John. And when there's the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, 2 Corinthians and those who are free are free indeed. The Son has set you free. You are free. There's freedom, amen? amen? But are you free? That's the question. Because positionally, we know that we've been offered freedom. The reality is, the problem is that many of us live in slavery. It reminds me of when we were interviewing um, different groups for when we became aware of this issue of human trafficking in our world. There's more slaves in the world today than there uh, ever has been in human history. Many of them labor slaves, many of them sex slaves, and we were talking to different groups, and some were gospel-oriented, some of them were not. Uh, they just did good deeds, and we weren't interested in that, and we ended up meeting with uh, the, the founder of Women at Risk International. I remember my wife and I were talking to her just personally, 
chatting, and she ended up telling us something that was very interesting, I thought. Because what they do is they rescue people out of human trafficking and they teach them a skill so they have something else to, to do. And what she told me was what they found is they would rescue people and they oftentimes focus on um, sexual issues. And so there'll be a woman that's like in a brothel against her will doing things she doesn't want to do with people she doesn't even know. They would rescue them out, buy them, all, just get, the, get them out of there. And then what they would find is that the women would go back. Voluntarily, they'd go back. And so they were in there against their will. They get rescued out, and then they voluntarily go back to do things they don't want to do with people they don't know. It didn't even make sense. And she told us why. Because that's what they know. And that's what many of us do. Why do we keep going back to our sin? Because that's what we know. That's how we deal with stress. That's how we cope. We think that's just how we're made. That's how we were wired. That's my personality. This is just my thing. This is how I do it. And we're in bondage. We're set free positionally if we're in Christ, but then we live like slaves. Why would we choose this? I don't know. It's just what we do. There's a better way. The problem is many of us, we say positionally we're in Romans chapter 8, but we live our lives like we're in Romans chapter 7. It's time to stop living in Romans chapter 7 and start living in Romans chapter 8. You can't stop reading. You've got to keep going. Therefore, there's now no condemnation. But how do we live that way? Well, that's what the rest of this passage ends up telling us. It tells us how to live a life that would be brand new to many of us. Not only are we set free to live where sin is dying, we're set free to live where the Spirit is leading. We're set free to live the Spirit-led life. Where the Holy Spirit of God, the very Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, is indwelling us, guiding us, leading us. Really interesting about the book of Romans, there's a Greek word for spirit, it's the word pneuma, in the first seven chapters of Romans, the word pneuma appears twice. In Romans chapter 8, the word pneuma is there 21 times. Romans chapter 8 is telling us how to do this very thing. 19 of the 21 times talking about the Holy Spirit. What happens in the next several verses, verses 5 to 13 that I'll read to you, is it contrasts the spirit-led life to the sin-nature-led life, or the fleshly-led life, or the this kind of world-lived life. Depends on what kinds of translation you're reading. This earth, you're thinking about everything. It's, it's all about here. It's all about now. It's all about this life. It's all about creation. It's that life. And there are a lot of things where you could spend a lifetime reading about what the spirit-led life is and what the sin-nature life is. You could write dissertation on it. You could write a theology book on it. Let me summarize it. The spirit-led life is a life lived selflessly. It's not about you. The sin-nature-led life is all about you. And so you might disguise it with good works but ultimately those good works are about you. It makes you feel good. You're a better person. You, do, you get credit, whatever. Whatever thing is you're doing, it all revolves around you. And so the self-led life is a self-indulgent life. It's a self-driven life. It's a self-centered life. Everything's about you. And so as we read verses 5 through 13, ask yourself, which one am I? The sin nature life, spirit-led life. Listen to it. Those who live according to the sin nature... Have their mind set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. So is your mind, where's your mindset? The, uh, the mind of the sinful man is death. But the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. Verse 7. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. In, in other words, you're, you're, you have no chance. If you're apart from Christ, you've got no chance at having the victory that we're about to talk about. There's no way. And why do you even want it? 
Because ultimately it's with God. And if you don't believe that he's there and you don't believe that he's for you and you don't believe that he died for you, then why would you want it? And so even when you disguise your life as making it look good, it's ultimately about you, which is bad motive, so you have no shot. Verse 8, those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Verse 9, you, however, believer, you, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body's dead because of sin. So in other words, if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit we're talking about. There's no JV Christians versus varsity Christians. It's not that God loves some Christians more than other Christians, so they get the Spirit, and some Christians don't get the Spirit. If you're in Christ, you have the Spirit of God. If you don't have the Spirit of God, you are not a Christian. So the evidence of you being a Christian is not, in Awana one day, I did this thing. I walked an aisle, I prayed a prayer, I said something, I had an event, there was some experience. God's not going to ask you about Awana. You have the Spirit of Christ in you. Then I know you. Because I'm in you. So you have evidence of the Spirit. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. So those members that are at war against you, He will give life to your mortal bodies. Through His Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, because of what we just read in verses 5 through 13, therefore, brothers, other Christians, we have an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature, to live according to it. Verse 13 is the key to Romans chapter 8, spirit-led life. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Where's the Spirit leading? We talk about Spirit-led life. Many of us are like, well, then what job should I have? And what house should I buy? And what, who should I marry? What school should I go to? All that stuff. We're not talking about something mystical here. This is clear-cut stuff. The Spirit's leading where sin is dying. It's the same place. You're set free to live where sin is dying. You're set free to live where the Spirit is leading. The Spirit is leading where sin is dying. That's what the Spirit's doing, is leading us to the place where sin is less and less. Here's the problem. For many of us, we talk about sin, you hear messages on sin, is really it's sin management. That's what most of us fall trapped to doing, is we want to control our sin, manage our sin, and pretty up, clean up our sin. And so it happens something like this. You, you pick a sin, whatever the sin is, we'll say porn, because it's a popular one. Um, porn's the sin, and so if you do that, uh, intimacy disorders, and ruins marriages, and all this stuff, and so you need to think about your family, love your wife, or if you're single, that someday your wife, person that's out there, um, so you need to do that. So what we do is this. We shift from one created thing, pornography, to another created thing, family. That's still from creation to creation. That's still, at, you're shifting idols. You're moving from one idol to another idol. You're moving from one idol that's socially taboo, at least at this point in our society, to another idol that's not socially taboo. It's still sin. Is a family bad? Family's not bad. I'm not saying family's bad. Don't write me emails about that. What I'm saying is that if you make family the thing that you're not focused on, that becomes your idol. And you're worshiping creation rather than the creator. That's idolatry. And you pick, another, you pick another sin, whatever it is. You're a jerk to your neighbor. We put Bible verses on this stuff, by the way, too. You know, love your neighbor as yourself. Stop being a jerk so you'll be a better witness for Jesus. But your focus is on now your, your life, the deeds you're doing. You're still in creation. Still on the creator. It doesn't matter how disciplined you are. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how pretty you are. It doesn't matter how gifted you are. It doesn't matter how talented you are, how physically strong you are. It doesn't matter how emotionally strong you are. You can't do this on your own. You got no shot. 
You are dead. You will lead to death. You are in trouble. You need someone else. Reminds me of a, a guy I came across this week, just in some other reading. Uh, I read about a guy named Eric Weinmayer. I don't know if you've heard of him or not. Pretty amazing guy. Black diamond skier, skydiver, championship wrestler, rock climber. Um, he's one of only, I think it's 150 people in the world that have climbed the seven highest summits on each one of the seven continents. Uh, he's one of only 25 Americans who's climbed Mount Everest. He's the only blind guy who's climbed Mount Everest. He's blind. That's what caught my attention. I was like, what? You know, blind guy climb Mount Everest? How in the world does this happen? I start reading about this guy. I start looking this guy up. I saw an interview that he did on Oprah. Now, let me pause. Okay, time out. I don't watch Oprah. I eat McDonald's. I don't watch Oprah. You judge a McDonald's. Don't be judging the other, okay? But I was doing research for the sermon, and Oprah came up on YouTube, and he's doing an interview with Oprah. And so he's on there watching Oprah. Uh, or I mean, I wasn't watching Oprah. Yeah, whatever. You get it. And it was on YouTube. It's like different, okay? And so I'm looking at the thing. Eric's on there doing an interview with Oprah, talking about this. And he wasn't born blind. He actually had a degenerative eye disease and became blind as a child. And then started to um, go do the things that children that have disabilities do. He'd get on a van. There was a disability, uh, children's disability van that would come and pick him up. He'd get on the van. He said that because he wasn't blind before, he'd get on the van. He'd be like, I don't belong here. I shouldn't be on this van. And he'd complain. He basically would harass the van driver. And he said one day the van driver stopped the van, said, Eric, get out of the van. Eric got out of the van. Then the van driver threw a basketball at his head hit him in the head, said, Eric, you can't catch a basketball. You're blind. Sounds pretty harsh. You'd probably get arrested today. But it changed this guy's life. He said, yeah, I realize that I can't. I can't do the stuff I could do before. He said to him at the time, blindness represented hopelessness, helplessness. He said, then the van driver picked the ball back up and said, hold your hands out. And he tossed him the ball and he caught the ball. And he said, Eric, if you start learning to to let other people help you, you might learn to catch again. And they got in the van. And he realized, I can't do this on my own. He said, can't, no one can climb Mount Everest on their own. He can't do the stuff that he's done in his life on his own. He's had to rely on others. And see, for us, it's not just you need an accountability partner. That's still just one, one of your steps. It's not bad. I'm not against accountability partners. You don't just need a, accountability on your computer screen or somebody to make sure you don't go to certain places. You have the spirit of the living God indwelling you if you're a follower of Christ. The very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is in you. So that means you have a power, access to this power in you that mere mortals don't have. That's something. So how do we do this? That's my question. I read the passage and go, it's almost like Paul's assuming, well, we know what it is to be led by the Spirit, to have the desires of the Spirit. What are the desires of the Spirit? How can I actually do this? There are a couple guys I recommend you want to check out if you want to go further into this. John Owen, who I quoted earlier, Be Killing Sin or Sin's Killing You, Mortification of Sin, and a guy named Jonathan Edwards, not the politician, old Christian guy, wrote a bunch of stuff a long time ago about fighting sin. And what they do is they point through a journey through Scripture. And the first place they take you is Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6 is the cornerstone passage on spiritual battle. If you want on your own, you read Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17. And what you'll see there is there are different things. There's an analogy, a warfare analogy that's given in our spiritual battle. It says you have the shield of faith. You've got the helmet of salvation. You've got the belt of truth. And it talks about the weapons that we're given as followers of Jesus Christ. There's only one offensive weapon. Do you know what it is? It's the sword of the 
spirit. So the spirit, so that's the spirit. So that's how the spirit slays sin. It's the sword of the spirit. But then the verse tells us what the sword of the spirit is, which is the, it's the word of God. And so then the word is actually the weapon that we use and go to Jesus. And what he does in Matthew chapter four, when he himself is being tempted. So the sword of the spirit. So the spirit is the one that slays sin. Verse 13 here, the spirit will put to death those deeds of the body. So the spirit is, is what does it. And how does it happen through the word? Well, how does that happen? Well, you start looking and what else has Paul written about this in Galatians chapter three and verse five, he says this, he's talking to the Galatians, by the way, about how you're saved and you live your spiritual journey the same way you're saved. You're saved by grace through faith alone, not of your works. You're saved by faith. And so you grow by faith. A lot of people have this misperception in their spiritual journey that as we trust Jesus and then heaven's taken care of, and now I'm on my own and I got to figure this thing out and I got to stop sinning so much. But it's by faith that you stop sinning so much. He does the work. And so he says this in Galatians chapter three, does God give you his spirit? And work miracles among you because you observe the law? No. When you've read Galatians 1, 2, and 3 so far, that's clearly not the case. It's not because of your being a good boy or a good girl. Or because you believe what you heard, the word of God. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Consequently, faith comes. How do you get faith? It comes by hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word of Christ, from the word of God. Being preached, being read, you're in the word. And as you hear the word, what do you hear? You get exposed to the rebukes. You get exposed to the correction. You get exposed to the promises. And so then you read the truth, like Paul said, Romans chapter 7, go back. I, I get the law, and I want to do the law, but then the members of my body, so you go out there, and so you read the word, or you hear the word preached, and somebody reads it to you, whatever way you get exposed to hearing the word, and that's where faith comes from. And then, but you go out and you live your life, like five minutes later, and what happens? That's where the battle happens. Why? Because you heard the promises of God here. And now what does sin give you? Sin gives you promises too. That's where the battle takes place. Think about the promises of sin. Talked about porn today, so we'll just talk about that one. What does porn promise us? Promises intimacy, promises relationship without any consequences, promises of satisfaction. And so it's being promised. You're getting promises fed to you when these things are tempting you, drawing you in. What does God's word say? Draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. I will never leave you or forsake you. There's where the battle takes place. It's a battle of faith. It's not a battle of willpower. It's not a battle of discipline. It's a battle of faith. Which promises will you believe? And you have the Spirit of God in you, the very Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that desires the Word for you. Let's take other sins. To pick other sins and just start picking. You might even pick your own. Do this yourself as, as we talk about this. Pick um, anger, bitterness, unforgiveness. What does it say? It says, if I, if I just hold on to this anger, if I just had this bitterness, if I had this unforgiveness, then I've got some power over that person. I've got some control over that person. I've got some, something that you think you're going to get out of not giving uh, the other stuff. And so what does the scripture say? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. You let me take care of it. Forgive just as Christ forgave you. How did Christ forgive you? Abundantly, without limit. We're commanded to do that. Think about your bank account. What is materialism is a big one for America. So let's talk about that. Money. Let's say the money. What does your bank account promise you? Safety? Security? What does the scripture say? The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are saved. What does it say about scripture? About, uh, in the scripture about money? It's better to give than it is to receive. See, that's where the battle takes place. Where will the faith be? Will it be in the promises of the bank account? Will it be the promises of the scripture? Will it be the promises of? Pick your sin. My, one of my struggles is worry. I worry if I think if I somehow I've got this mythical idea that I have some control over some circumstance that if I do these things, this circumstance will happen. 
And so some kind of control. And what does the scripture say? First Peter 5, 7, cast your cares upon me because I care for you. Don't worry. Who's added a, a, a single moment of their life by worrying? You're, you're killing yourself by worrying. Philippians chapter 4, be anxious for nothing. A command followed then by a promise. And everything was prayer and supplication. Make your request known to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will be yours in Christ Jesus. There's a promise there. Which promise will you believe? That if you, you just, if you worried enough, if you thought about it enough, if you manipulated enough, then you could. Or this one. That he's actually in control. Just think of it. You just keep picking. We could do this for the rest of the day. We could just keep talking about it. Here's what sin promises. Here's what God promises. Which one's it going to be? Here's what, you know, some of you are A-type personalities. If you just climbed this mountain, if you just achieved this goal, if you just got that promotion, if you just did these things, then what? Satisfaction? Then what? Like, what? then there's another one, then there's another, then you just double it up, then triple it up, then what does the scripture say? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Which one will you believe? Galatians chapter 5. I'll conclude with this. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Living by the Spirit means you hear the Word of God, you know the promises of God, and you submit to the Spirit then leading you to follow those promises. So what will it be? The battle will take place. As soon as we leave this room, it might even be taking place for some of you right in this moment. The battle will take place. And what will happen? Do you think the sin will work this time? Like a dog going back to its vomit. Maybe this time it'll satisfy. I mean, I know that I needed more, but maybe this time it'll happen. Maybe this time it'll deliver what it didn't deliver before. Or... Are you one that's been set free to live where sin is dying and where the Spirit is leading and the Spirit is leading where sin is dying? Let's pray. Father, we come before you today grateful for your love, your grace, your mercy, your Spirit that you would give us you to live inside of us. Father, I pray if there's any here that don't have your Son Jesus Christ as Savior, don't have the Holy Spirit living and dwelling within them, that you would convict their hearts right now, that you'd put a pressure on them, that you'd put a conviction on them, that you'd make them miserable, that they wouldn't be able to sleep, they wouldn't be able to think about anything other than your son Jesus and dying on the cross and their need for him, that they wouldn't be able to eat, that you'd remove their appetite. God, make them miserable, that they would come to know you and then they would know real satisfaction, they would know real joy. I pray they would trust your son Jesus as their Savior. And Father, for believers that are here that have been in this battle, for those who actually wrote those questions, I pray right now it would be a moment of repentance, a moment of renewal, a moment of restoration, a time where your spirit fills them up, where your spirit's from being quenched because of sin, that I pray that today would be a day where they put a stake in the ground and there would be a, a moving on from that struggle. And we continue to kill sin. There would continue to be a battle. The fight would be there, but that you would win the fight and they would do it by faith by faith in your spirit give them a hunger and a longing for your word the preached word the read word the heard word that they would want your word and that your word would then point them in the way of life and the way of peace it's in Jesus name I pray amen